welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Carly Sharon. And I'm your co-host, Ron Mendo. And today we're here with Gary Steubenberg. Thanks for being here, Gary. Yeah, no problem. So to start off, can you maybe just kind of briefly summarize what your research is on? Yeah, so the main focus of my research is kind of figuring out how bacteria can produce toxins that cause kidney diseases, and then how we can use other bacteria called probiotics, which are beneficial microbes, to kind of counter uh, those diseases. Okay, so I guess like in a typical day, how would you go about doing this? So you wanted to talk about kidney diseases. Is there like a way you do the testing or things like that? or? So... I uh, take like a reductionist approach to science, mm-hmm. so I do do like clinical trials, but my main day-to-day is actually developing models that we can use to study uh, the kidneys. So mm-hmm. my main model is actually the fruit fly or Drosophila melanogaster, which have an organ very similar to the kidneys, and you can pretty much replicate any kidney disorder, or at least the ones that I work with, chronic kidney disease and kidney stones in a fruit fly. Um, and then test bacteria in test tubes for beneficial properties and then supplement them to my fruit flies uh, to see which ones work and which ones don't and then bring those to the clinic. Why fruit flies and how can you use fruit flies to do? I feel like they're so small. How does that work? (laughs) So they are very tiny and it requires a lot of precision in terms of taking the organs out when it's time to actually look at them. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is that In terms of like genetic disorders, uh, fruit flies actually have a similar gene to 75% of the genes that cause diseases in humans. So they're actually a perfect model uh, for a lot of disorders that we experience. And probably the biggest benefit is that there's no ethical requirements for them. So you can do anything you want to them without anybody questioning it. And you can use hundreds and hundreds to get high replication, which is pretty key for science and something that I don't see happening with uh, like rats or for a lot of uh, kidney disorders that use cats as a model and mm. I've got two lovely kitties at home that I really wouldn't want to test on so okay uh, I feel slightly dumb asking this but like do you dissect the fruit flies or do you like have an x-ray or something <laughs> like, so That's a very tiny x-ray <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so confused how you like look at the fruit fly I guess it's so small yeah so uh, you do have to dissect them and the way you do that is you use a microscope so that you can make the fruit fly look bigger um, and then you use these very fine tweezers where you can't see the point of them without actually looking under the microscope either and you kind of just pull them apart very carefully until you have the organ that you want to look at and then you can do like tissue staining or in my case when it's looking at kidney stones Uh, Kidney stones reflect a certain angle of light and so when you change the light on a microscope you can get those to show up really bright in a dark background and then you can just use a computer program to quantify how many stones there are. All right, I gotta Google these tweezers later because <laughs> I'm like picking the tiniest thing in the world right now. <laughs> They're electron microscope tweezers. Okay, yeah. all right, I'll look that up. Interesting. Uh, how do you give a fruit fly kidney stones? Like what do you do to, to cause that? So kidney stones are mainly formed uh, with calcium and oxalate which are just two chemicals or compounds that are present in your food, in your body. Um, Those make up the majority of uh, kidney stones. There are other types, but I won't go into that. So you can actually just feed them calcium and oxalate together, and then they'll start to develop kidney stones naturally. I'm going to ask you, if the 
I assume the fruit fly can get those kidney stones just because they're so small, so when they ingest them, it develops rapidly. Would that also happen in like humans or other animals if you ingested those two things? So there's a lot of controversy uh, mm-hmm. surrounding that idea. So in terms of like something like oxalate, it's high in a lot of like leafy green vegetables, but mm-hmm. people eat those every day and generally don't uh, get a kidney stone. So what's cool is some of the oxalate that would come into your body through your diet um, will bond with calcium also formed in your diet and it'll form a crystal in your stomach or in your gut and those crystals can't pass uh, through the intestines to actually reach the kidney. So you would just poop those out um, (laughs) unless you have an extremely high amount of it that you couldn't actually get all of the oxalate or all of the calcium to bind to each other. Then you could have some absorbed through your... uh, like through your intestines and maybe reach the kidneys. All right. So I wouldn't suggest taking high doses of oxalate <laughs> or calcium, but at the end of the day, if you were to take both of them in high doses together, it would probably have no effect. Okay. All right. Okay. Interesting. So like we typically get kidney stones from our diet then? Like, is that the main way that people get kidney stones or is there other driving factors? So no one really knows. There's okay. a bunch of different theories um, that people think uh, cause kidney stones, and that's kind of what my work is trying to figure out. We know risk factors for kidney stones, but we don't know what the initial factor is that actually starts the process. Um, So a few reasons or causes that people can get kidney stones is dehydration. So you would have more, uh, like a higher concentration of the compounds that would uh, cause kidney stones in your blood. Eventually those would reach your kidneys. Um, And what's kind of cool is the closer you get to the equator, um, there's actually more dehydration and a higher incidence of kidney stones, but also things like a sedentary lifestyle, so not moving around too much. Uh, It's kind of like if you were to take a snow globe and shake it up and constantly shake it, the snowflakes would be moving around constantly. But if you're sitting and or if you let that snow globe sit, eventually they would settle. So it's kind of thinking of it like that. Maybe this inactivity is causing the kidney stone causing compounds to settle on your kidneys and would get them to form like that. Then there is dietary factors. So uh, high protein diets, as well as um, like high oxalate diets sometimes uh, can cause kidney stones. But the one thing that I've kind of learned through my study is, is that one of these things in isolation won't cause a kidney stone. You kind of need a bunch of different factors to all come together and eventually you would have one form. So I can't really give you a great answer as to how we actually get them, but these are like general trends that we've noticed. And something else that has been more of like a recent discovery is that people who get kidney stones have a certain gut microbiota profile. So bacteria, fungi, and viruses that reside in your gut. And so we're starting to think that potentially these bacteria and other microorganisms could have a role in causing kidney stones. And that's what I'm looking at. Okay. So you just uh, you brought up this idea of microbiota. What is that? Can you just find it anywhere? Is it on like only in cells? What kind of thing? What is that? So microbiota loosely is the collection of bacteria, fungi, viruses, bacteriophage, so bacterial viruses, um, in any certain location. So it could be your gut, it could be your skin, it could be your mouth, it could be a rock, it could be a plant or the soil. And it will change based off of where you are and what you're looking at. Okay, all right. 
earlier on, sorry, I'm going to go back a little, yeah, but you brought it. up this uh, probiotics. Could you like explain what that is or what you can do with those kind of thing? So by definition, a probiotic is a live microorganism that when administered in adequate doses confers a health benefit to the host. Generally, um, these are bacteria, but there are some like yeast-based probiotics. But the biggest thing um, that people need to understand about what a probiotic is, is that it's actually targeting a specific disorder or disease. And you need to give enough bacteria to have that function played out. Um, so if I were to take 10,000 as just like a general number of bacteria, and that's the number that I need uh, of a certain bacteria to have a health benefit, and I were to only give somebody 500, it could be the same bacteria, but if I give 500, it's no longer a probiotic. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. But I hear like, I feel like I hear probiotics in foods and stuff all the time, or like some people say they don't work really well. Like, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> Lots of thoughts. So <laughs> probiotics and like the gut microbiota is a huge fad right now. So mm. pretty much everybody from the skincare industry to health foods and pretty much everywhere you look on like a drugstore, you'll see probiotic anywhere. And that's uh, kind of a result of a lack of regulation. So there's these things called grass organisms, which is generally regarded as safe. And often people will supplement those into whatever product and just call it a probiotic. But that isn't what a probiotic is. Uh, bacteria can be broken down into genus, species, and strain, with strain being the most specific uh, way to describe a bacteria. And the function of a probiotic is defined at the strain level, whereas grass organisms are defined at the species level. And so a lot of companies will take um, the species and not the right strain and claim that they have a probiotic, but because it's not the right strain, they'll give it to somebody and it'll have no effect, which has caused a lot of controversy in the field because people don't really understand what a probiotic is. And there's all these products on the market that are labeled as probiotics, but they do nothing. And so when you have a real probiotic placed in front of you, people are just like, hmm, that's probably not gonna work. Sorry, La Laura here. Uh, I would like to ask you, how does probiotic help? Like, why some bacteria do something and why some other wouldn't do anything to improve your health? Uh, I think the easiest way to explain that is to compare them to, like, a common pathogen. So, like, salmonella, right? Salmonella is a traditionally known as like a bad bacteria. You eat some bad food, you get food poisoning, and great. Well, not great, but that would be like a bad bacteria. Whereas other bacteria, which some of them are probiotic, but I'll use a broad term as beneficial bacteria, uh, actually have really important functions in uh, human health. So from the start of like human life as a baby, you're colonized with certain bacteria and they can actually train your immune system to not respond to certain things. Uh, they can select for other beneficial bacteria. They can improve uh, your gut health in a way that allows you to select for nutrient uptake as opposed to toxin uptake. I think everybody knows that toxins are bad. Whereas something like salmonella could go into the gut, um, disrupt your gut health and cause like more toxins to be uptake or actually produce toxins and some bacteria can take those toxins away in addition to just improving like your gut health. Um, 
But the function of a probiotic, again, is very specific to the disease that you're trying to target, right? So one of the most studied uh, probiotics is to like counter diarrhea in infants. And essentially it's kind of taking away the nutrients and the space for bad bacteria to be in your gut and fixing the issue. Okay. So, sorry, you brought up this idea of like probiotics being specific and that's what we need like we need the species section and not the grassroots or the grass strain. Or, not the strain, the strain yeah. and not the grass organism yeah. organ and the idea that the grass organism is what a lot of companies are using so is the, when they use the grass organism is are they just having like a bunch of different strains in the probiotic or is it like is it like an amalgamation that's why it's not working or so in a species there could be 10 or more strains, mm-hmm. right? So generally it would be one strain, but the company um, labeling something as a probiotic that isn't, doesn't actually know what that strain is, even though it's still just one bacteria. Um, and so they don't actually know if it has that capability to provide a health benefit. Another thing that companies like to do is kind of like you said, they'll take a bunch of these species that are generally regarded as safe, mix them all together, and even if one of them has a benefit, they could be having interactions with the other bacteria that they put in that mixture that don't allow that benefit to shine through. And so it's just a lack of regulation and actually studying what they're trying to fix that leads to these products not working. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Thank you for that. I yeah. think you, like, maybe, I don't know if this is too dumb, but we could think about it like a human population. Like, we are all humans, we're the same species, but there are some humans that know history, some humans that know science, some humans that are good at sports. So if you want to play a hockey game, <laughs> you don't want to send people who cannot skate. <laughs> so you would like to have, like, a specific type of, like, a sp- specific population of your species to do that specific thing that you want that you want right yeah so that's how it will work for bacteria like they're also they're all the same species but they have different ar- abilities i guess yeah it, it's actually not a dumb example at all that's generally what i would use okay. as an example to explain uh probiotics to somebody because humans are very diverse but even within like a subsection of humans we'll use the hockey players as an example right There's defensemen, centers, right wings, left wing players in hockey. You could call those all the same species of bacteria. But if you were to take a defenseman and put them on forward, they might not be as effective anymore, right? So that would be where the strain uh, idea comes into play. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a really good analogy, actually. Good job, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) Can you kind of explain to us how probiotics and microbiota and kidney disease all come together in your project? Like, what is the the connection there. Yeah, so um, it all starts off with the bad guys, Uh, so the bad bacteria. Generally, there's some initial insult that would happen to the kidneys that stops it from uh, doing its function. Um, Simply put, and in terms of like my project, we'll call it the ability to take toxins from your blood and excrete them in your pee. So when you have that loss of initial kidney function, these toxins and other compounds start to build up in your blood, but your body still needs to try and get rid of them. And so what happens is they'll actually dump those compounds into the intestines uh, so that they would get pooed out instead of peed out. But what those do is select for more bad bacteria. And 
those bad bacteria can produce more toxins, they'll start to build up in your blood even more and go and mess up kidney function even more. So the idea of like probiotic in terms of my um, studies is we found bacteria that can take these toxins away from the intestinal environment by bringing them into their cells and probiotics don't have the greatest ability to stay in uh, the intestine after they're delivered and so they'll take these toxins up and then you would poo them out with more efficiency but they also have the ability to counteract and kind of kill the bad bacteria there and reestablish some of the healthy bacteria with some of the compounds they produce so um, bifidobacteria is the main one that I work with um, they produce a bunch of food sources uh, for other good bacteria but also produce compounds that can select against the bad bacteria. So in addition to taking away the toxins that are being produced, it's also kind of lowering the amount of bad bacteria that are producing the toxins. Okay, and you're doing all this on fruit flies? Not just on fruit flies. So um, we also have a couple of clinical studies going where we're actually seeing um, whether or not the probiotic has the ability to reduce the toxins in the blood. They do. <laughs> um, and to, we're starting um, to put in ethics for uh, a study to see if we can have like a prophylactic therapy for a probiotic to prevent kidney stones uh, from forming. Uh, but we also are developing like other models as well. So there's cell culture, which takes like human cells um, and we can form them into like these essentially mini kidneys that you have. And it's like a 3D system and they have like a little hole in the middle, uh, kind of like a tube, right? Just like your kidney has these tubes. And we can give those cells the compounds that we talked about earlier that cause kidney stones um, and actually get them to form inside those little organs um, to mimic uh, kidney stone development without actually having to give a kidney stone to a human. Um, that's still under development, but the goal would be to then see if we could find certain strains uh, to counteract uh, kidney stone development like in that model. But going one step further, right now we're just using like general cells, but the main goal is to be able to eventually take cells from a patient, make that mini organ, and then test treatments specific to a patient to see what would work for that patient instead of just like a general treatment. So kind of like personalized medicine. I know this question is going to sound really stupid and I might delete it, but what's the function of the kidney? Why, why, why is it important for a kidney to work? <laughs> and why does it get stones uh, on the first place? Like why, why don't we get stones in other places of our body? Or we do, or I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we don't get stones, but we have a very similar process. Uh, to stone development in other places of the body, but I'll get into that right after I explain kind of what the kidneys do. So generally, um, your blood is flowing through your body. It's carrying around waste products, good products as well. Um, and that eventually goes to the kidneys where it will take some of those out so that you can pee them out and remove them from your body. But it also has a role in maintaining homeostasis or like general uh, well-being of like certain things in your body like salt. Um, which obviously you need, but if you have too much salt in your body, then bad things start to happen. So it maintains um, proper levels of certain compounds that are flowing through your blood um, and gets rid of the stuff that's in excess. 
So it's like a filter for toxins. Yeah. Our human filter. Yeah. Cool. A filter for toxins, but also it makes sure that you keep the things that you still need uh, from your blood. That's amazing. Yeah. It's very selective. And it's like, honestly, a little too complex for me to even start to go into. I could talk about it all day. Um, but just in terms of like compounds flowing through your blood, it makes sure that everything is at the level that it should be. Interesting. For some reason, my mind went straight to um, like shifting for gold. Like you have a little shifter and we're only keeping the gold of <laughs> taking away everything else. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you because I was like, I also want to get to Alora's question too when she was like, is there other par parts in our body that get stones or something similar? But before that, I was so curious when you were like, oh, we're making little kidneys. What What, what is little? Like how, like how big is little? <laughs> Um, hmm, I'm trying to give like a size. We do them in like little wells that are about two to three centimeters in diameter and a couple centimeters deep. So like very small. You have to view them under a microscope to actually okay. look at them. Um, but even at that size, we're still able to model some of like the functions or the environment that the kidney has. So we can call them small kidneys because they are able to regulate the compounds of a fluid that you're passing through them? No. So it would, they're essentially made of the top layer of cells that like urine would pass through in your body. And they form into kind of like a soccer ball shape, but a hollow, like hollow. So it looks like a tube. Um, and it, we put them in an environment where you have a constant flow of uh, I'll call it fake urine uh, for now. So to mimic like that liquid passing through your body and the stones form on like that top layer mm -hmm. of cells. So that's why we only use those ones. It'd be really difficult to start to actually model all of the different tubules and filtering processes that go on. But again, like that's kind of science, right? You can't model everything perfectly the way that it happens in nature. So it's kind of just our best attempt at it. And even still, we're, we still have a lot of work to do to actually get this to be a, a functioning model. Nice. So you said that the goal of this was kind of like ultimately to be able to do precision medicine where you're treating a specific patient. To get a little mini kidney that's representative of them, would you have to do like a biopsy or something? Like how would you get their cells to then make that mini kidney? Yeah, so you wouldn't actually need to do a biopsy. You shed cells all the time. Like in your pee, if you were to go look through it with a microscope you could actually find still live cells that had just shed off of uh, like that top layer that we're talking about and okay. you could isolate those from the urine culture them up so that they start replicating and then eventually have enough to work with all right carly gary what is a biopsy <laughs> uh, a medical procedure where you're going into the body to take something out okay yeah. all right good to know <laughs> <laughs> All right. I also wanted to, like, I want to get back to Laura's question because, like, she was asking if, like, there's other parts of your body or other organs that get, like, stones or something similar. Do you know of any things or, like, is this even possible? Yeah. So, like I said, we're still kind of trying to figure out what the underlying cause of kidney stones is. But something uh, that we've noticed recently is that the process of kidney stone development is actually very similar to calcification that happens in your arteries or your veins so like heart disease atherosclerosis stuff like that it's the buildup of calcium uh, deposits in your uh, blood system or along the veins 
And while those are mainly calcium, they still form up to this plaque. So it's not necessarily a stone, but eventually if that builds up enough, it would block passage of the blood and have all sorts of bad things happen. Um, but that's kind of what we're trying to figure out. If that process um, of vascular calcification is kind of what's driving um, like kidney stone development. So every kidney stone has this thing associated with it called a Randall's plaque, which is just a little layer of calcium uh, that the stone starts to build off of, even if that layer of initial calcium is different from the actual stone composition itself. So we're kind of trying to see if these two like things that are happening in the body are one and the same. So no in terms of stones showing up in like the vasculature, but you could get like a bladder stone, um, which obviously not the kidney, but again, very similar. Okay. Sorry, I was thinking of when you talk about calcium and all this stuff, I'm like, this is sound going to sound so stupid, <laughs> but it's like, if I drink too much milk, will I get <laughs> kidney stones? <laughs> See, I'm noticing a trend. Every question that you ask, everybody thinks that it's a stupid question, but they're actually very good ones. Like, um, I drink a lot of milk. In fact, I've been called out on it. So it's like, should I stop? So there is uh, some controversy around that, again, and this is kind of the nature of the beast of my field, is that one uh, thing could cause a stone in somebody else, but it would have mm. no impact on another person. And that's kind of why you need like multiple things to happen. Let's say you were just drinking crap load of milk and you have a bunch of calcium. Eventually, some of that would start to enter your bloodstream. Your body has ways of dealing with this other than uh, just forming a kidney stone, right? Like if your kidneys are functioning well, you'll probably piece them out. Um, or it'll start to store it within its own cells. Calcium can be used by cells for certain things. You need it as like a cofactor for some proteins to function. So your body has ways of dealing with it naturally, um, but it's in too much excess where it might start to become a problem. One thing I would suggest to you is if you're drinking a lot of milk, also take uh, eat a lot of leafy greens as well because they have that oxalate. And so you could get the calcium to bind with the oxalate in your like stomach or in your intestines, and then you would just poop out crystals instead of having them form in your kidney. Okay. Does <laughs> lettuce count as leafy greens? I uh, would depend on the type of lettuce. I would suggest probably avoiding iceberg lettuce just because that's mainly water. Um, okay. But stuff like spinach, uh, dark leafy greens, so like maybe like green lettuce or kale, um, they have a lot of oxalate. Duly noted. Yeah. So, uh, I drink like one glass of milk every morning at least. And then, so, and I, I don't think I have a lot of leafy greens apart from lettuce. So it doesn't I, seem like that much milk, one glass. I mean, that's the bare minimum. Okay. <laughs> Do you have lower back pain? I feel like, I don't know. I feel like depending on what I'm doing, I feel like I might. <laughs> so lower back pain can be a sign of a kidney stone forming. Oh, um, no. Because your kidneys are just kind of right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I guess the people listening can't uh, see where I'm pointing, but just... <laughs> Right below the belly button on your backside is kind of where the kidneys are located. Um, so if you start to feel like sharp pains there or discomfort, then maybe reduce your milk intake. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. This conversation is just make me making me think like you clearly know a lot about the body and I guess like you will have these kind of consultations often. Like how does it 
how has been the experience for you of doing a PhD in such a relevant topic about probiotics that I guess everyone has so many questions about and like knowing so much about the body that everyone wants <laughs> probably to ask you about uh, their diet, for example. So how is, has it been for you? Well, generally, people don't ask about my research <laughs> too, too much. Um, and like even myself, right? Like I have all, like I do have a lot of knowledge about the body and the kidneys and kidney stones, but I kind of just keep that up in my head for the most part <laughs> and just get to work. And then when it's situations like these, people start to like, ask certain things and that's when like I will talk about it. But just in terms of like working in a relevant field, it's pretty enjoyable. I mean, kidney stones affect so many people, um, including people in my family, some of my friends. And they do ask questions, oh, like, what should I avoid? What should I do? Um, and I'm always kind of stuck with, well, I don't know, because it could vary depending on each person. So in a way, it's very frustrating that I can't just give a concrete answer. It's great that I can speculate about it, but at the end of the day, I really don't have all the answers. I wish I did, but... <laughs> Like sometimes to my family, I'm the only scientist in my family. They ask me all these questions and just expect me to have all the answers all the time, which can be quite difficult because, you know, I want to give them the answers and they want them and they think that I have them. But I just have to sit there and be like, I don't know. But then they say, oh, but you have all this knowledge. You do know. But the answer is we're just unsure. Well, I will say I appreciate it. In my acknowledgments to my dissertation, I'll let it know. Like, <laughs> Gary saved me from kidney, kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'd all love to continue interrogating you about kidneys, but unfortunately, we're just about out of time. So thanks so much for coming on. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about your research, uh, do you have any social media that you would like to share? Yeah, so my Twitter is probably the best uh, place to see updates on my science or to reach out to me, and it's Gary Biotics, G-A-R-Y-B-I-O-T-I-C-S. I love it. That's great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Carly Sharon, and my co-host was Sharon Mandur. We've been speaking with Gary Steubenberg, and this episode was produced by Laura. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.